Bitcoiners, welcome to another episode of FedWatch here with Ansel Lindner. And we had a fantastic conversation with Michael Leibowitz. Um, Michael is a fantastic analyst talking about all things Fed. He has been watching the Fed closely. Uh, and this was a wide ranging conversation. Ansel, what was your take? Yeah, he's more, um, I would say more of uh, an investment guy than we've had on here. Uh, we've had a lot of just more broad macro people. So uh, it was a different flavor to this episode, but I, I did like uh, his takes. Uh, he has a very grounded view. Uh, I, I don't know. I might have to do a, a reaction on Bitcoin and markets because uh, he didn't, we dove into some topics, but I wish we would have more time to dive a little bit deeper. So I might have to do that on another episode, but yeah, it was all in all uh, a great new, fresh type of uh, guest for us, I think. Absolutely. And again, I think that this was a really practical practical and level-headed uh, conversation. Uh, Michael isn't a Bitcoin diehard like ourselves, uh, but he has, you know, it what we would consider to be a pretty accurate pulse on uh, the macro backdrop. So uh, regardless of your opinion on Bitcoin, gold, bonds, other store of value assets, other in- insurance policies, if you will, um, you know, this is going to be a really, really helpful episode. Yeah. And I also wanted to say that it, it's apparent that he has done some research into Bitcoin and tokens and things like that. So uh, I think this is a good sign because if you would have asked him last year, I bet he would have done zero research. He would have had a completely different view of Bitcoin. So uh, as a representative of like an investment class or uh, investment advisor class, uh, he is, I think he's a good representation of that. And he's done a lot of research into Bitcoin already. So uh, I think it's a good sign. All right, guys, before we get into this interview, I want to tell you guys about the Bitcoin 2021 conference. This is going to be the most amazing event that Bitcoiners have ever experienced. We have the CEO of Cash App and Twitter, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of MicroStrategies, Michael Saylor. We have Nick Zabo. We have so many incredible entrepreneurs and movers and shakers in the space. The man, the myth, the legend, cultural icon, Tony Hawk. So, so many people and so, so many Bitcoiners are going to be there. Thousands of Bitcoiners have already purchased their tickets and we have a hard cap on how many people can be there. Our prices are going up this Friday on March 5th and you guys can get 10% off of a cheaper ticket if you buy them before then. So do not wait. Go to b.tc backslash conference, buy your conference ticket right now and use promo code SATOSHI. That is all caps SATOSHI to get 10% off. All right, let's get into this interview with Michael Leibowitz. Welcome to FedWatch, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So I've been uh, watching you on YouTube actually for about a year and then reading your blog post for about six months. And so uh, like we were talking just before the show, a lot of what you write about is what we talk about here. So we wanted to have you on and have a discussion today. Can you give us uh, our viewers a little introduction into RIA advisors and your blog writing? Yeah. So RIA advisors is a typical RIA. We manage money for individuals, uh, family, you know, families, that type of thing. Uh, We are not necessarily traditional. We're, we're, we're more active managers. We don't believe in buy and hold. We don't like to just sit on a portfolio and hope everything works out. Okay. Um, and, And we, I think, you know, Lance and I, Lance Roberts and I, the two portfolio managers, tend to have uh, 
unique views on the markets, on the economy, on the Fed, as I'm sure we're going to talk about. Realinvestmentadvice.com is where we post all our articles. We're writing articles all the time about, you know, again, the same topics. It seems like way too many articles on the Fed, but economics, markets, you know, precious metals, sometimes, you know, the whole, the whole gamut of topics that re revolve around investments and finance. So that is where I spend uh, all of my time. Awesome. So Michael, um, something that we talk about here, right, and you kind of bring up is the fact that the Fed is so involved in the, you know, everyone's lives uh, in the markets so heavily. And, you know, we are viewing this as a very negative thing, like they are impeding free markets. And, you know, we are optimistic that Bitcoin offers an alternative um, to this kind of monetary hurricane. You know, I don't know if it's deflation, I don't know if it's inflation, but things are definitely not right. Um, so not necessarily asking you about your opinion on Bitcoin here, but more from a high level, what do you kind of see going on? You know, maybe what is being misinterpreted by uh, some of the pundits out there? You know, can you kind of give us your two cents on what's happening in the, the macro scheme? So I think you said it right there, right? Free markets are being greater and greater corrupted by the Fed and others, but the Fed is, is largely part of the problem. And this has been going on for years. And the, the biggest issue I have, it, and this goes beyond my investing on behalf of other people and my career, and it, it's basically what they're doing to this country and to, this, to our economy, right? So capitalism is a very powerful tool when used correctly, right? It can really, it's the, it's the, the biggest, it's the best economic way to pull the most people out of poverty, to distribute wealth most fairly. But the problem is over the last 30, 40 years, and for a number of reasons, not just the Fed, you know, corporatism's another one, that capitalism isn't allowed to work. Now at the base of capitalism is free markets the ability for buyers and sellers to come together and to figure out what's the right price. And that price is what we call the market price. Well, the Fed has decided, and increasingly so, that it's incumbent upon them to determine what the price is for money. Thereby, any transactions involving money or the dollar are now directly or indirectly governed by the Federal Reserve. And they're skewing the price of money. They're skewing the price of everything. And it's basically taking, it's creating a headwind for capitalism. And I think this is one of the, you know, because the Fed has been so active and manipulating markets and not just treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities, they really affect all markets. They have a direct effect on the stock market, all these SPACs on Bitcoin, on gold, on silver, on commodities, you name it. They're affecting the price of everything. And what bothers me as a citizen of the United States is the harm that they're doing and the social rift that they're causing and the pathetic economy that I'm going to have to hand off to my kids as they uh, enter the workforce in a few years. Uh, you know, so the question is, as this becomes more and more obvious to people, how will, how will we protect ourselves, right? And there's a lot of options. I think Bitcoin is a very valid option. 
I think precious metals are also a very valid option. But I think people are going to be looking for hard, hard assets, be it real estate, be it be it precious metals, Bitcoin, I guess, is that considered a hard asset? I don't know, but it's an alternative <laughs> asset, something other yeah. than the dollar. And I completely understand Bitcoin is the rage today. And I get it, believe me. And I can, you know, and I understand why this is happening. And I, I fear this is going to get worse and worse. Yeah, we've called it a financial hurricane. I said that in a in a hurricane generators the price of generators will will go way high right so it is the specific type of asset that you want to invest in is is that one that during an emergency people are going to flee into and that's what we see during some of these crises these uh you know like the repo uh break back in september of uh, 19 and and other obviously the corona crash and stuff um but i wanted to ask you specifically about two articles that you wrote you wrote recently about uh, the TGA, the Treasury General Account, and some of the new developments there. And we haven't talked, had a chance to talk about that on the show here yet. Um, and also you talk, had another one about pent-up demand uh, hitting this summer, maybe as the you know, economy opens back up more. So can you uh, talk about those two and maybe how they're converging this summer? Sure. We'll get technical and geeky and talk about the TGA first. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So basically what happened over the last year was the treasury borrowed too much money. They thought they'd be spending more than they spent. And to make a long story short, they're now sitting on about $1.5 trillion, which they put at their bank, which is the federal reserve. So the treasury has 1.5 trillion that they will spend that's sitting at the federal reserve. Typically, that number is a couple hundred billion. It's really a small number. This is an anomaly. And you can see why it happened, but it happened. So what has to happen is I believe by August, it has to be all the way back down to like 250 or 300 billion. So basically, the the Treasury has to spend that money down, which is not a problem. And, and, you know, unfortunately, it's not a problem. They're going to go right through it. But the problem starts coming in for the markets because if they're gonna, if they have this call at 1.2 trillion that they have to spend, they don't have to borrow money, which again seems like a good problem, except your your markets are predicated on a lot of debt issuance and collateral, right? So the Fed or the Treasury tends to borrow a lot of their money in what we call the short end, which is kind of the Treasury bill sector, one year, two year sectors. So what's going to happen over the next few months is that the Treasury is going to issue a lot less Treasury bills. The yields on those Treasury bills are already only a few hundredths of a percent, two, three, four, five basis points. Without that supply and heavy demand for cash, we see corporations have a lot of demand for cash and individuals are parking a lot of cash. The rate on those bills is probably going to go negative, which the Fed doesn't want. Right. The Fed has said they want positive rates. They want them at zero, but they want them positive and it's going to push Fed funds with it. So this is where things get very interesting. What is just like the Fed tries to keep their rate. They've been keeping Fed funds right around eight basis points, give or take. You know, it varies every day, but at eight basis points, as that number goes to zero and below zero, the Fed has to take action to target to get their rate back to target. So. What they do is they buy and sell securities. They're basically taking money out of the market or putting money back in the market. And what they're going to have to do 
in theory, one of the ways they can do it, there are numerous ways they can do it, which we talked about in the article, but one is to basically not do QE, right? And, and that'll have the effect because they're not buying those assets that everyone else is clamoring for. The other thing they can do is operation twist. What that means is they sell those securities they have that are those front end securities and buy long end securities. And my guess is this is what they're gonna do because they're probably getting a little uneasy with, with long-term rates that are creeping higher. So this, you know, this has been done twice before in 2011, they did it right around QE2. And actually in 1961, they did it uh, under Kennedy in the Kennedy administration. So I think this is what's coming down the pike over the next month. And it serves two purposes. It keeps rates positive, but I think the big, bigger purpose, which has emerged over the last week or two is to keep longer rates uh, from going up anymore. Again, they're not letting the free market find the free rate. Uh, the second well, article- I just uh, wanna jump in real quick on that. So um, yeah, that was gonna be one of my follow-up questions was, uh, uh, as it, uh, in regards to collateral. So if the treasury is issuing much less debt and the fed is still doing QE and sucking that off of the market already. And we have these auctions that are, you know, 2.5 times oversubscribed already on average that, I mean, it just seems like they're setting up for disaster, doesn't it? Yes. But no, I mean, I think they have the tools to handle it. They can also do reverse repurchase transactions where they basically take their securities and put them out into the market and take in cash. The, the question I think is how are these interpreted by the market, right? Mm. If they do the first example, I said QT, if they stop doing QE, the equity market's going to fall out of bed. That's, that's what's keeping the market up where it is. Right. If they all of a sudden decide they're going to do that operation twist, well, then they're basically saying that they're capping rates and that has some pretty big effects. One of the things the Fed is trying to do is actually steepen the yield curve, make longer rates higher than shorter rates, because that helps the banks and that maybe entices the banks to lend more. So they whatever they do, they have a problem. And then I think a lot of the release valve comes down to the dollar. What does all this do to the dollar? And, you know, if you further kill the dollar, that's inflationary. Maybe they want that. But the other countries don't. Europe probably does not want to see the euro rise anymore. And same with Japan. Um, you know, and if they strengthen the dollar, that's deflationary. But they said they wanted inflation. So, you know, the Fed's kind of getting trapped where they, they I think they can handle the situation. But where's the release valve? what pops up? It's like that game of whack-a-mole. Some other head is going to pop up and is that head good or bad or indifferent? Um, so, uh, you know, and I think this comes with, it's almost like telling a lie. The more lies you tell, the more, you, the, the more potential <laughs> traps you get into, the more monetary policy and the more different weapons they use, the more potential trouble they get into because there's a cost for yeah. all of this. Well, we talk about this in, in the Bitcoin space where uh, complexity is the enemy of security. So yes. if the more complex something is, the more likely you're going to get exploited. So, um, okay, can we move on then to the pent-up demand? Right, pent-up demand. So what the Fed did was basically, the Fed really doesn't print money. 
as much as I like to say they print money and everyone likes to say they print money and, and I'll still keep saying it. They, what they really do is print what are called reserves and reserves are like toner that the banks can use to create money. Uh, basically with reserves, banks can create money and they can create money at 10 times the rate. It's called the money multiplier. Uh, banks are not creating money. People aren't borrowing money. Banks don't want to lend money. Banks want to lend towards more speculative purposes and there's just not great demand for money. People also are saving money. Corporations are saving money. So one thing we look at is you can look at the money supply, right? And we've seen the money supply charts and it's a, you know, it looks like Mount Everest. It's just going up and up and up, right? But what no one else, no one seems to focus on is velocity. And velocity is the rate at which money spins through the system, how often it's spent. So, you know, we can look at this through kind of an extreme example. What if the Fed this afternoon said, we're going to print 40 gazillion dollars, right? Everyone would say that's incredibly inflationary, right? But what if I said they're going to take that 40 trillion and put it in a hole and bury it and put a bunch of security guards around it and no one's going to touch it? Then it has no effect. Who cares, right? The, the money has no value, right? Because it's not going anywhere. Well, so that's- unless- Unless it's on someone's balance sheet and it's keeping them from going insolvent. Of course, of course. Yeah. But so the money supply on its own is a very important thing to watch. But the question is how much money is really floating through the system? So what we've seen is the money supply going up like a mountain and the exact opposite picture is monetary velocity. So it's not being spent. And when it's spent, it's not being respent by whoever got the new money. And that is keeping inflation in check, give or take a little, right? So what I proposed in the article is, and a friend of mine actually said this, we were having beers a few months ago and he said, we were somehow talking about the economy and none of these guys are finance, business, marketing guys. And he said, the economy is going to go crazy this summer. And I just said something like, better be careful what you wish for. And I think he's right. There is some potential. There is some pent up demand to go out, to do stuff, to spend money. And there is a decent amount of savings in the system right now. The problem is if, you know, and I, I, I use the word go, if the consumer goes, if we go crazy this summer, you're pushing up velocity. At the same time, the Fed is still adding money at an incredible rate, 120 billion a month. So you kind of get into the circumstance where monetary velocity and money supply are still rising. And that's the inflation. Uh, That's a formula for inflation. And that I think is what is scaring, scaring the markets. It's starting to scare individuals. And, and look, I think the fed's thinking about a lot because there is one comment every day from, from, from Powell all the way down, all the other Fed speakers said something to the effect that inflation is transitory. I actually just saw it about an hour ago, hit the tape. I forgot, I think it was Brainerd said this inflate, we're going to see inflation, but it's transitory, meaning it's going to last for a couple months and it's going to go away. And look, maybe they're right. Uh, I actually do think that this one case, I'm going to say, I think the Fed is right, that we are going to see a bout of inflation and it is probably transitory. So I think at the end of the day, there's some massive long-term headwinds that that are deflationary. But I think we have the potential for inflation. 
We also look at data, economic economists look at data year over year. So come April, when we start getting March data in April and April data in May, we're comparing it to March and April of last year when we were in a gutter. So everything on a year over year basis is gonna show some incredible growth rates. And we're gonna certainly see that with CPI and PPI and other inflation measures as well. But I think the, the real question is what happens when we get to June, July, August, when we get some of the stimulus spending out of the way, when we get some of this pent up demand, if there is some out of the way. Uh, I think that's when things get more interesting. And if it's not transitory, the Fed has a big problem on their hands because they have real inflation that's going to be much more than their target and they're going to have to do something about it. Well, I've actually been pleasantly surprised with how much the Fed has been saying that it's going to be transitory or temporary type uh, uh, inflation because um, uh, Jeff Schneider and some of the other Euro dollar people that I listen to, they, um, you know, they, they say that this stimulus is not a replacement for actual economic activity. So even though it's say the treasury general account has to be spent down by a trillion dollars, say uh, that's not a trillion dollars of economic activity. That's just a trillion dollar sugar pill that will wear off and you'll, you'll probably be sleepy after it. Right. So the economy might get a boost in the short term, but it actually could turn worse afterwards. Uh, so I, I, I do like that the fed is saying that. And it's funny because just like you, you don't want to agree with the fed. I don't want to agree with the fed. I think that they're always late and they're always pretty much choose almost the worst possible policy for the time. Um, but in this case, maybe they're coming around and starting to see some of these things that uh, people have been talking about. So um, that's, that's all I had for this uh, treasury general stuff. Uh, Christian, do you have the next question? Or you want me to keep rolling? Yeah. So um, Michael, you know, I think you kind of touched on it a little bit, but we've been, we've been trying to have a more nuanced take on inflation versus deflation in that debate. Um, kind of curious, you know, what's your take on like where velocity fits into that equation. And again, just to kind of frame where Ansel and I are at, you know, we like to use the description as like a, a monetary hurricane is happening, right? Like mm-hmm. um, people like, economic actors don't even know what's happening and therefore, you know, their actions may be um, a little weird or maybe illogical, but kind of curious, you know, deflation, inflation, velocity, where do you stand? So I like your hurricane analogy and I may actually have to use it at an article because I think where we're at now is in the middle of that hurricane, the eye of the hurricane. And in the eye of the hurricane, the weather's decent, right? You see storm clouds to your left and to your right and north and south but the weather's good, the wind has died down, it stopped raining, the sun may have come out, right? And that's where we're at today. The problem is if we look to our west, we see these massive storm clouds and and winds going one direction. If we look to our east, they're going the exact opposite direction. And I think there's some massive forces that are in this economy. Some are very inflationary and some are very deflationary. And unlike a typical hurricane, which kind of has a path and you get your your, your wind's going one way and then your wind's going the other way when it comes you know, through you, this one is wobbling. It's going back and forth. And there are so many factors driving it. The Federal Reserve, the government, consumer habits, corporate habits, global, what's going on in China. And I, I think what's important is that we kind of take a bird's eye view, an eagle's view. We try not to get bullish or bearish, inflationary or deflationary. 
and just look at what's going on because any of these factors could instantly turn very deflationary or very inflationary, right? If consumers go crazy this summer and we get, you know, we pass the current $1.9 trillion stimulus and we, we decide we need another one in May, you're starting to look at some very inflationary pressures. And if the economy opens up and all the supply line issues don't get solved, that's another inflationary boost. So that's inflation. Now on the deflationary side, demographics are horrific. We just, we're adding unproductive debt. So productive debt pays for itself. You can kind of think of like the Hoover Dam, right? We spent a lot of money. We employed people and it was a nice stimulus for the time, but it also paid benefits for, it's still paying benefits, right? It allows Vegas to be Vegas. It allows LA to exist the way it does right now. It grew, the whole Southwest grew because of the Hoover Dam. All the debt we're doing now is being thrown down the toilet. It's being used, it's gone. It's a sugar high, as Ansel said, right? And we're gonna get to the end of the sugar high and we're gonna be exhausted. And so you couple that with the longer term macro demographics, debt, uh, pro weak productivity growth, and you get this deflation, massive deflationary headwind. So, you know, we're kind of in the middle of these massive forces going back and forth. And I, I you know, I just urge people to be too careful calling themselves one thing or another, a bull, a bear, an inflationist, a deflationist, and just pay, pay a lot of attention to what's going on because things are gonna change and they're gonna change rapidly. No. I was gonna say, it's kind of like the weather, it's very dynamic. It, you can't just predict what's going to happen in six months because there's these forces changing on you. I think that's why all of us are a little opposed to uh, to central planning, right? Uh, because it's just yes. it, there's no way that the the Fed and our other central banks can take all of the inputs and actually process them to make a a valid decision. That's what the market right. is for. Um, so you you've said you know in this interview and in other interviews both that the Fed can create money but that they also, you know, can't, right? They're not effectively doing so. Seems like kind of a contrarian position to have. Um, can you tease that out a little bit? I know that, you know, you did kind of talk about um, the different, uh, kind of the different things that are happening between demographics and printing, as well as mm -hmm. the T-bills. I'm just kind of curious how, how that all fits together. Right, so the Fed really doesn't print money, right? The Fed could print money. They could print money and Ben Bernanke he once said he could throw it out of a helicopter and it would be raining money. And that's real money, right? But what uh, the way the Fed prints money is they basically give a license to print money to the banks. And for the banks to actually print it, they have to lend it, meaning they need someone to borrow it and they have to agree that the, the borrowing rate is valid, the, the interest rate is valid, and that the borrower likes the interest rate. So there's... It, it, you know, this is, I'm actually putting an article out tomorrow. Remember that game, the price, the TV show, The Price is Right? They had a game on it called Plinko. And in Plinko, they have these in an arcade too. And you put the little coin at the top of the slot and it bounces around, you know, hitting pegs. And then yeah. it lands in one of the 20 slots at the bottom and that determines what your reward is. And that's what I like in monetary policy too. Once they do QE, they lose control, right? They're basically dropping a coin on a bank and a bank decides where that money is going to go, right? If fiscal stimulus can be incredibly powerful because they could say, 
every guy wearing a black hat that has a beard can get $20, right? They can pinpoint it. I'm working for you, Ansel. <laughs> they, they can pinpoint it to exactly who needs it and they can tax so they could take it away from whoever they think doesn't need it. And look, I'm not in favor of all that, but they can. Fiscal stimulus can be very effective. Monetary stimulus is basically saying, okay, banks, who, who should we help? Who should we hurt? Banks work for their bottom line, right? But we're not fooling anyone to think banks are going to do what's best for the economy, right? <laughs> if, if it happens to be that the banks can help the economy and help their bottom line, that's great. But we see them also putting a lot of money into the financial markets via leverage, margin, indirectly, not them themselves necessarily, but you know, lending to hedge funds and the repo markets, et cetera. Uh, we see money being spent purely for, for uh, consumption purposes, which isn't, you know, it's again, a sugar high. Uh, and banks are, look, they're sitting on a lot of those reserves the Fed gave them. They're earning a rate of interest from the Fed. They're earning, I believe it's 10 basis points for doing absolutely nothing. So, so when we talk about the Fed printing money, they're not really printing money. They're giving a license to banks to print money. And banks are saying, no, that's all right. Thanks. So we'll just profit from what you do and go on. A perfect example of corporatism um, and kind of like how it is corrupting uh, the current system. Where do we go from here? Right. Um, Angel and I think that Bitcoin is our only chance. Uh, I know you're heavily involved in gold and other alternative investments. You know, what do we make of this situation and how, you know, where's, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? So here's the warning for Bitcoin holders, for gold holders, holders, for silver holders, for anyone else that thinks there's another currency. The currency is what makes the government so powerful. Controlling that currency, you control fiscal policy, monetary policy, defense policy, you control. And because the dollar is the world's reserve currency, you kind of indirectly control the world, right? You have so much power. And if the US government were to lose that power, that's a big problem. And so what do you do? Well, you go back and look at the 30s and they made holding gold illegal, right? So my biggest concern with any alternative currency is that the Fed or the Treasury make it or the government make it illegal, right? Or they tax it. They tax it crazily. So, you know, there, there's advantages to holding gold is that I can have an ounce, you know, I can have ounces of gold in my basement. The Fed or Treasury don't even know they exist, right? It's easy to hide. The risk is that my house catches on fire or someone steals it. I can have Bitcoin. The risk is that the government imposes a new rule that says they have access to all Bitcoin accounts somehow, right? I know it's decentralized, but if they can centralize it if they want to, they can make it, you know, go to jail for a year if we find out you're holding Bitcoin, right? That, so that's what concerns me about every alternative currency, but also drives me to own and consider all these alternative currencies as a necessary hedge and insurance policy. And, you know, what the Fed is doing, what Treasury is doing and government doing is not what is in our best interest most of the time. And they are, they are in a trap. And this trap has been going on for building for 30 years. So, you know, I just warn the listeners that you can't look back at the last 10 or 20 years and say, okay, this is going to continue at this rate because the numbers that are being thrown around, the trillions of dollars that are 
not really going towards economic, sustainable economic health has a dear price to pay in the future. And I feel like we were already on this path, but COVID sped it up, you know, immensely. And the lockdowns with COVID. You've also written an article recently on, um, I believe it was tokenization, or um, I think that was what it was. And uh, so you obviously have done a little bit of work in that direction, or at least thinking about that. Um, do you, so if, say, the dollar hegemony is in danger, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and there we hear all this talk about CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies, mm-hmm. and we see kind of this move in that direction. Do you think like there, there is a systemic change that's going to happen in the next decade or so? that the whole financial system is going to have be shifted over to something different than being based on the United States dollar? Or um, what do you think about that? Well, I think Dodger dollars become digital at some point. It, it makes a lot of sense. It makes it easy to move money. It makes it, I mean, we're all doing it already with Venmo with, you know, various other ways, you know, I haven't had cash in my, I took out cash right before COVID happened. I used to always have, you know, 50, hundred bucks of cash in my wallet. And I went away like two weeks before COVID and I took out like 200 bucks. I used my credit card the whole time. So I came home with $200 in cash. And up until about a month ago, I had that money in my, you know, it, it slowly worked its way down, but I, you know, I had like 20 bucks all summer and, uh, t- you know, 10 bucks through the winter. And I finally spent it all. And I haven't gone to the ATM and, you know, got in over a year. So, so paper currency, is becoming less and less popular for obvious reasons. And I just think we're going, we're going, we're going towards a digital age. The question is, is it centralized where the government has control or decentralized? And that's where you kind of get into those powerful forces. So I wrote about tokenization because sometimes I write about things to help me better understand it. Uh, and that was something I really wanted to, to, to better understand because I, I think there's a lot of promise in it. So I did a lot of research and I wrote the paper and I find that writing, if you can explain it, it's better than just thinking you understand it in your head. Um, so I wrote the paper on tokenization and what, what I kind of came across is that the positive is that right now I could sell you my Ford stock or IBM stock and it can be me and you, we determine the price and you give me the money, you give me the whatever, however we exchange money, I give you the shares and within 10 seconds, the transaction's done. There's no middleman, there's no risk, right? Everything can just be done. Almost the transaction can be done on a risk-free basis. The, The problem is, the reason they don't, they, the banks don't want me to trade with you is because they like to get in the middle and take their tax essentially, right? And they also, they find me you, right? They, they find someone to buy my stock. They ensure that your money is going to come to me. So that there is, they serve a purpose. And prior to tokenization, that, that, that purpose helped capitalism, it helped free markets, it helped buyers find sellers and helped ensure that buyers and sellers are both solvent and own the assets they say they own and they took on that risk. But now we have a tool that allows you to trade anything at any time with any person on any type of exchange or any non-exchange, just 
outright trading with a person and exchange those goods very easily. Um, but it doesn't involve the banks and the banks have a massive lobby. And we know that tokenization, while it may be a tool and while it certainly helps capitalism, it helps, it helps us, it helps the people. It doesn't help that upper 1% of bankers that are going to, you know, slow it down as much as they can. And unfortunately, that's kind of where I came out on it. That's a great idea. I see a lot of value in it. It's certainly there's some more kinks to work out, but but who who's who doesn't profit from that? So, Michael, actually, I have an observation here. I, on Twitter, I posted a meme a few months ago because uh, we were talking about central banks effectively routing around the the banks, like commercial banks, with CBDCs, right? Because, like we discussed earlier on this podcast, you know. The, this this policy with QE and giving reserves to banks, you know, those banks don't necessarily distribute it across the economy. And, you know, we're seeing MMTers and other folks who want to improve the distribution of funds. Right. So, you know, in a potential uh, world where let's call it central banks route around banks, you know, we're seeing just today, PayPal, Square, other banking institutions adopting and servicing Bitcoin as kind of a way to access new profits. So firstly, I'm not very bullish on tokenization because of the fact that it's impossible to get around the fact that there's a third party. You can't have Apple stock without Apple, right? Without them issuing and kind of honoring it to some degree. So it's not truly peer-to-peer, but that's the beauty about Bitcoin is it is a purely peer-to-peer, purely digital, trustless, uh, risk-free asset like that's what it offers uh, so I mean I think that's why we're we're so optimistic about it and it does have some portability improvements over gold uh, so in the uh, the kind of a attack perspective where um, you know policeman is knocking on your door asking for your bitcoin uh, it is a lot more portable than gold and easier to move right. with but um, you know obviously you know th- there are risks like no one here has really experienced uh, that 6102 moment uh you know, with Bitcoin quite yet uh, in the United right. States. So uh, we don't know how, how it will fare. But, you know, I just wanted to throw a few and, ideas and I, out I don't there di- to I don't disagree with I don't disagree with you at all. I, you know, when you, when you talk about money, elasticity of money matters. So how much money is there? You don't want a set amount of money. You don't want what we have now, just a massively grown amount of money. You want kind of that Goldilocks scenario. So the one of the one of my concerns with Bitcoin is it's limited, right? They're only gonna they're only gonna print. Can we say print? Digitize so much Bitcoin, right? Yeah, mint. Do- sure, mint. mine. Yeah, I'm sorry, mine, mint. I I knew that. And then dollars, they're infinite, right? They're gonna be printed up the wazoo. Gold has to be mined, right? And they mine gold. Uh, they grow the amount of gold outstanding by three or four percent every year. So nothing's perfect, but money has to be elastic to as economies grow. And I think that's something that everyone should think about is what serves that purpose and what can serve, what can replace the dollar if it's going to be anything. But, you know, when you start. Why thinking- does it have to be elastic? I'm just kind of curious. I know that this is definitely a, kind of a, a pillar in economics. Well, you have to have, be able to make loans and have some sort of credit. Um, my, my, my pushback would be that um, you can always have like in the gold standard or when we had, you know, uh, 
the the wildcat banking and stuff right. in the United States, there there was a lot of private credit out there. So right. it, it just wasn't as uh, huge like we have today, you know, where e- nation states have 300% of their GDP in credit. And that, that would never happen on, on a gold standard, you know, or on right. a Bitcoin standard. Right. Right. No, no, I, look, there's, there's benefits to, to all and there's costs to all. And there, there's no doubt in my mind that if Bitcoin is the answer that people will figure out how to make it more elastic, that it may not be as finite as everyone thinks it is myself included. Maybe it will be, but maybe there's ways to, to land off it. Um, so, you know, these are all challenges that we all face both as just, we need a good currency, but also how do I protect my wealth and try to be in that correct, that right currency. And, you know, I think it's important that people consider Bitcoin, they consider precious metals and, you know, anything else that they think holds value over time. Cause we are, we're in some rough waters here. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I would also say that um, investing in Bitcoin, you don't have to go all in or anything like that. Uh, a lot of right. these companies are putting one or 2% or 5% or something like right. that. I think that is, uh, it, it's been said that if you don't have a little bit of Bitcoin, you're, you're effectively short Bitcoin. So it's look, yeah. it's an insurance policy. I make yeah. my insurance insurance payment every month. I hope to God I never get to see any rewards from that. So, you know, it's just like my gold. I, I don't own 100% gold, not by any stretch of the imagination. Again, if gold goes down in value, it's, I'm probably better off financially because everything else going on in my career, in my life is, is going well because it means we have a sound monetary policy. And, you know, that, so, so it's part insurance. It's part a... Bitcoin's part insurance, but it's also just part, look, there, there's better ways to do things. Technology changes the way we can do things versus the way we had to do it for the last 500 years. So, you know, it's also embracing something new and different. Um, Michael, thanks so much. Uh, I think you definitely do kind of bring a very grounded uh, opinion to to Bitcoin um, you know, uh, Chamath has, you know, he's framed it as well as other hard assets as kind of like schmuck insurance. Um, so, uh, you know, I definitely see that for sure. Uh, you know, we want to give you an opportunity, you know, if you were to kind of give the audience an idea of, you know, how you would navigate kind of the immediate uncertainty, you know, again, for us, it's kind of dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin, dollar cost averaging into other kind of equities. But, you know, what's kind of your take on the the short and medium term uh, ways to navigate all this craziness? Uh, you know, what? these start with equities. Equities are very overvalued. So I know it's easy to follow trends and to say, oh, wow, this this keeps going up five, 10 percent every other week. All these, you know, there's so many different vehicles out there and so many different high flying stocks. But at the end of the day, what you're doing in equities is paying for cash flows. And that's based on the economy. It's based on inflation. So, you know, just with anything, understand what you own, understand its pitfalls understand the risk and reward, and don't go all in on anything. Uh, manage risk. I think management of risk is so important and so few understand it. That means there are times, you know, you don't want to sell 
after the game's over. You want to sell in the ninth inning. You also want to buy in the first inning. Easier said than done, but unfortunately in the ninth inning, everyone can't buy enough. And in the first inning, no one wants to buy. Everyone's trying to sell. So, you know, kind of think of the cycles have prevailed throughout history, all kinds of cycles, financial cycles. And we are in another cycle. And whether you like it or not, we're much closer to the bottom of the ninth than the top of the first. And behave accordingly. Uh, don't go all in in anything. Cash is fine. I know it earns nothing, but some cash is fine. Be conservative because it's, we are, you know, and we kind of started the conversation like this. The Fed is controlling the markets and it all works until they lose control. And we just saw a little bit of that last week when the yield on the five-year bond went up 25 basis points and all hell starts breaking loose. So there, there's not a lot of room for error here. And you, you got all kinds of outside forces that can happen too, right? This isn't just about the Fed and monetary policy in the markets. There's all kinds of geopolitical risks and natural risks and all kinds of things that can happen. And it's one thing when those risks happen in the first inning, when, when assets are undervalued or fairly valued because your downside is not that great. But when assets are very highly valued, that's when you, know, you need to manage risk. And if you can't sleep at night because you have that much risk on your books, that means you got too much risk. You know, and it, look, it's stocks, it's bonds, it's it's just about every kind of liquid asset class right now is on fire. Really, you know, we see that the world, it, it has a store of value issue, right? And you kind of mentioned cash is fine, you know, we're at the top of the ninth. But if there's kind of like this more um, sovereign crisis going on, like is cash fine? And I know that we've framed other things as, you know, insurance policies, you should have an insurance policy in case it is. But, you know, we've seen kind of things escalate a little bit. Like, is cash really fine? Fine for today. I'm not saying buy and hold cash for the next 30 years because cash is a problem, right? You're going to lose purchasing power. But everything has its flaws. The nice thing about cash is when everything goes on sale, you have cash and you can buy it. Again, I also think we tend to be in a more deflationary environment. So even though cash earns zero, if deflation is running minus 5%, you're earning 5% on your money. You're gaining purchasing power. But you know you got a dollar that's being killed. But you got the euro and the yen, and they're all doing the same games. So, you know, they're, they're, again, there's tremendous forces out there. And I guess what I'm really just saying is caution, right? How you want to express that caution, if you're an old school boomer like me, that may mean more cash. If you're millennial like you guys, that may mean more Bitcoin. It's more of whatever you believe buys you that comfort. Um, gold, you know, high, you know, high quality dividend stocks you know, maybe some bonds in, in solid companies, whatever it is, maybe it's a foreign currency, maybe it's land, whatever it is that, that you believe can survive some of these big problems that are coming our way, I'd say, think about that stuff. All right. Very, very fair. Michael, why don't you uh, close it out with uh, an ask or a last word for our audience and tell people where they can find you. So you can read all our work 
I, I publish with Lance Roberts at www.realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, we have a subscription service set as well, ripro.net. Uh, you can look us up there. Uh, we do where we have a YouTube channel. Uh, you can find us all over the place. Feel free to come. We got a, you know, a lot of great free information out there. We're always writing. We're always trying to piss people off. We're always, you know, we, sometimes we have an alternative view and, uh, whether you agree with us or not, I, what I like to think is that we can educate you and present different points of views that you may or may not agree with, but at least you have, you can put more conviction into what you're doing and how you're investing. Fantastic. Well, again, Michael, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, And you guys, for the listeners, make sure to give us five-star reviews. Again, the only Bitcoin and macro podcast that brings on these type of experts uh, to talk about macro and Bitcoin, of course. I'm CK Snarks. You guys can find me on Bitcoin Magazine. And of course, you can find Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Thanks so much and have a good one. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.